Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling, and I am a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com because there I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a diva. Look for me on iTunes, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Today I have the privilege of talking to Dr. Poppy Daniels. And Dr. Poppy Daniels attended the undergraduate and medical school at the University of Missouri-Columbia. She completed a residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And she's known as Dr. Poppy to her patients and social media followers. She has a wide variety of special interests, including physician midwifery collaboration, functional obstetrics, obstetrics, bioidentical hormone therapy, um, and polycystic ovarian syndrome and infertility, just to name a few. And I'm just really thrilled to have you on the PCOS Diva podcast, Dr. Poppy. Thank you for having me. So I found you through your social media Facebook page at um, Facebook at Dr. Poppy. Um, and you post some really fantastic information and links and your own blog posts, and I really encourage everyone listening to follow you. Um, but I really reached out to you because you posted a great um, article about the importance of progesterone in early pregnancy and um, to avoid miscarriage. And I think that this is a really valuable um, topic for women with PCOS because women with PCOS tend to be low progesterone um, anyway. So I thought we could talk a little bit about progesterone and, and kind of the PCOS connection um, and, you know, why women with PCOS are low and, and what we can do about it. Um, and so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you the, the stage and um, we can get started on the topic. Okay, great. Well, uh, this is a very important topic for PCOS patients. And uh, it sort of points to one of the major problems hormonally with PCOS. But unfortunately, at least in mainstream treatment of PCOS, it's hardly ever addressed, which is a problem because yeah. progesterone is the cornerstone of PCOS therapy, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, whether a woman is trying to get pregnant or not. So it's important in either situation. And that's because most women who have PCOS have ovulatory dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And as you know, that can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, some women, they don't have periods at all. Um, sometimes they'll have very irregular periods. Sometimes they'll actually have fairly regular periods, but they're very, very heavy or long or painful. And as you know, PCOS is associated with infertility, and that is stemming from the ovulatory dysfunction. So whether or not you're trying to get pregnant, you need progesterone, and progesterone comes from the ovulated egg or the corpus luteum. So 
if you're not consistently ovulating, which most women with PCOS are not, then you are going to be progesterone deficient. And progesterone is <clears throat> often overlooked hormone. Most women think about estrogen when they think about female hormones. And for whatever reason, progesterone has not been given the same attention as estrogen. But progesterone is just as important as estrogen. And even more so in pregnancy because progesterone is the progestational hormone. You need it mm -hmm. to get pregnant. You need it to stay pregnant. You need it to have a full-term birth. So <clears throat> if we know that women who have PCOS have progesterone issues because they're not ovulating consistently, then that increases the likelihood that their progesterone may not be optimal when they are pregnant. And that's very concerning, of course, in terms of risk for miscarriage. And that's something that, you know, women at PCOS, with PCOS are at higher risk for. So if you look at <clears throat> traditional mainstream treatment for PCOS, you usually have, they sort of lump you into two categories, <laughs> either trying to get pregnant or not trying to get pregnant. Right. If you're not, not trying to get pregnant, a lot of times you're offered birth control. And they, there's, there's sort of two different traditional camps when it comes to that approach. The first camp says, well, these patients are not having a period regularly, so they need to shed their lining of their womb so that they're not at risk for uterine cancer. And so obviously uh, birth control is sort of going to force you to have a withdrawal bleed every month. And so that sort of take, takes care of that problem. And then the second thing that happens with birth control is that, in general, women with PCOS overproduce male hormone. And that can be DHEA, testosterone, androstenedione, all of the male hormones that can cause excess hair growth or acne, oily skin, oily hair, thinning of the hair on top of the head. Um, the elevated androgens is what we call that. Well, when you're on birth control, birth control makes you produce a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. And this protein can increase or sort of suck up some of that extra male hormone that women are producing with PCOS. So some of those women do better on birth control with their, with their acne or hair growth on their face. And so that sort of, in, in one line of thinking, is helping the symptoms of PCOS. The problem with that, and this is sort of the other camp of um, clinicians or people who treat a lot of PCOS, is that birth control, of course, is not, there's no natural birth control pills or any of the options that are medical options for birth control are not natural hormones. They're all synthetic hormones. And so when it comes to progesterone, you're not getting natural progesterone and birth control. And so it's not going to give you the progesterone you're not making. So it doesn't really help that problem. And then birth control, of course, has 
different problems that it can affect you metabolically. The birth control pills can increase insulin resistance, which most PCOS patients are dealing with in one form or another. <clears throat> and of course, it has cardiovascular risk factors, heart attack, blood clot, stroke. Again, PCOS patients tend to be at higher risk for these things anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's probably somewhat problematic. And I think that I, I view birth control, if it is used in PCOS, as maybe a temporary short-term uh, solution for some women. Um, but it certainly doesn't fix PCOS. And I think yeah, that's I'm, important for women to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I kind of view it more as a Band-Aid. Um, it's, it's not really getting to the root cause, the root issue. Um, and it also, we, I just recorded a, um, a podcast with Dr. Keisha Ewers about libido, and um, that's another thing that birth control really can rob us um, of is, is our libido. Um, yeah. And, and you did mention blood clots, and I can't tell you how many women that I hear from when I post um, my articles kind of about the, the risks of the pill, and I mention that women with PCOS are two times more likely to um, experience blood clots while on the pill. And, I mean, women are posting that, that, you know, they're in their 20s, their 30s, and they've had, you know, a life-threatening blood clot um, while on the pill with PCOS. Yeah. So there, these are real risk factors, and, and I'm so glad that you brought that to our attention. Um, the other well, thing I, I, I want to mention... Well, I want to mention oh, one quick thing about birth control. Um, for many years, um, le probably less so now, but maybe eight to ten years ago, a lot of PCOS women were being put on a birth control called YAS, mm -hmm. um, which you may be familiar with that birth control pill. And it was felt to be a better birth control pill for women who had PCOS because it has less and androgenic properties than, um, than some birth control pills. And it also had some similarities with another drug that's used for PCOS called spironolactone. And spironolactone is a male hormone blocker. And a lot of women with PCOS are put on spironolactone for that reason. So this particular birth control um, actually had similar properties to spironolactone. The only problem is, and now, of course, now we find this out after medications have been on the market for long enough for us to see the problems with them, that Yaz actually had an even higher risk for, for blood clots than some of the older uh, first and second generation progestins that were in birth control pills. Mm -hmm. So the particular progestin in Yaz was a fourth generation progestin that had, it, it depends on which studies you look at, but 100 to 300 times higher risk of blood clots than wow. traditional birth control pills. So you have uh, women, as you said, who already could be at higher risk, then taking a pill that puts them in the even highest risk category. And it's really become an issue, especially if doctors really are not 
keeping up with these things and just sort of prescribing birth control sort of without knowing some of this newer information about the increased risk with the newer generation progestins. So you have a lot of PCOS women who were put on Yaz or Yaz or Ocella. Um, the, that's a generic, generic version of that pill. And they are actually <laughs> at much higher cardiovascular risk with that particular type of pill. And that's why, you know, I really advocate um, digging into the information yourself and um, knowledge is power and listening to experts like yourself, Dr. Poppy, and um, and other uh, podcast recordings and, and dig, you know, getting on PubMed and kind of looking and, and researching yourself and, and arming yourself with this information um, because it you know, sometimes you just can't rely on, like you said, your doctor to be up to date with all of the, the latest information. Um, there was something else that I wanted you to clarify. So a lot of women write in and say that their, their doctor has given them Provera so that they um, can get a, a period. And I think there's a misconception, again, that, that Provera is progesterone. Right. Very good point. Um, this is a long-standing problem, and that is that a lot of doctors sort of interchange the term progestin and progesterone, so that a lot of people think that they are the same thing, and they're not. <laughs> um, natural progesterone is uh, a different hormone than any of the synthetic progestins that are in birth control. So Provera is medroxyprogesterone acetate, and that is the hormone that's in Provera and Depo-Provera, which is the birth control shot, and it's also in the HRT drug PrimPro and PrimPhase. There's actually two HRT drugs that have uh, Provera in them. And medroxyprogesterone acetate is certainly not real progesterone. And it, it always surprises me when I see people say uh, that that's progesterone because it's very clearly not, completely different chemical structure, and has different side effects than natural progesterone. However, it's been used for years and years and years to induce periods. So basically your typical uh, scenario is someone hasn't had a period for two or three months or longer. So they get put on 10 days of Provera to induce a period. Um, but the issue is that we do have natural progesterone available on the retail market as a pill. It's called Prometrium. Mm -hmm. And so to me, why would you want to use a synthetic hormone that has other side effects instead of the real hormone that your body isn't making, which is progesterone? And so Prometrium... Um, is generic real progesterone or bioidentical progesterone. And I think a lot of older doctors just sort of grew up using Provera, and that's just what they're used to. Um, the, the younger doctors, I think, are mo more open to using Prometrium rather than Provera, but it's still very commonly used to induce periods. Um, what's disturbing and what I like to point out to patients, especially if they're also trying to get pregnant, is that Provera is pregnancy category X. 
that means it's contraindicated in pregnancy. Whereas, you know, natural progesterone, you have to have it or else you're not going to have a successful pregnancy. So that's a very good way of contrasting the differences between synthetic hormones and natural hormones. So in my opinion, you know, why would we need to, why would we need to use a synthetic hormone when we have the real one? So that, again, if, you know, those listening, um, sometimes you have to be a diva. And, you know, if your doctor is prescribing Provera, you know, certainly bring up um, Prometrium and, um, you know, ask, ask your doctor about that um, as an alternative. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Poppy, for, for women listening who are trying to conceive um, or maybe early in their pregnant, very early in their pregnancy, um, what do you usually, um, what is the protocol for your PCOS patients um, in, in regards to progesterone in, you know, trying to conceive or early in pregnancy? Well, my practice is different probably than your traditional practice. Um, all of my patients get tested for progesterone mm -hmm. in early pregnancy. The vast majority of PCOS patients, they need support. They need that hormonal support. Is that something that other doctors are talking about? Do you know to their patients? Have you heard of that before? Uh, well, I, I can tell you um, when I hear, when, when women share that they've, you know, they've worked so, you know, tried, struggled so hard to get pregnant, they're finally pregnant, I will say to them, you know, please ask your doctor to test your, your progesterone and make sure it's um, rising as it should. And if not, you know, ask for supplementation. And a lot of doctors are not doing that. So, um, you know, I, maybe you could um, explain what test that you should ask for. Um, and, you know, at what, like, we, like as early as, like, five, six weeks, um, you know, at what point are you testing? Sure. Um, so I think that there's such a disconnect between doctors uh, sort of going back to physiology and thinking about normal pregnancy and normal uh, hormone levels in pregnancy because, Progesterone, as you know, after you ovulate, you produce the corpus luteum. That is what produces the progesterone. And if the corpus luteum is removed in the first trimester, so if a woman were to have surgery and have her corpus luteum removed, she would immediately lose the pregnancy. So that's been, you know, we've known that for a long time. That's just sort of basic hormone physiology. Um, what I think most doctors do not understand is that, uh, number one, testing for progesterone levels, um, we do know that the majority of successful pregnancies in the first trimester are need to have a progesterone above 20 by six to seven weeks. And so what I see a lot of times what happens is that a doctor will either go by whatever range is listed as normal by the 
lab tests. You know, mm -hmm. lab, different labs have different ranges of normal. So I've heard everything from, oh, as long as it's in that range, it's fine, or as long as it's above 10, it's fine, or as long as you're not bleeding, it's fine. And what it reveals to me is sort of an ignorance of what it should be. And that is that it should be above 20 by, by about seven weeks. It should be above 20. So what we have is a lot of doctors who will not give progesterone unless a patient has either had a miscarriage before or is bleeding or cramping in early pregnancy. And even then, you have a whole contingent of doctors who think that progesterone support in pregnancy is voodoo. I mean, I literally had doctors say that to patients. That is voodoo. It's not supported in the literature. We only do it to make women feel better. Sort of all of these very <laughs> uh, incorrect and sort of derogatory things that are said, basically like, you know, yeah, women ask for it and we put up with it and it doesn't really do anything. Well, number one, again, I point back to normal physiology. Progesterone is the cornerstone of hormonal uh, production and support in early pregnancy. So what the corpus luteum does is the progesterone that it produces, it actually prepares the womb or the lining of the womb, the endometrium, uh, for the arrival of the embryo. And it actually secretes what we call uterine milk. So those are proteins and nutrients that help the, the developing baby to grow. We also know from lots of studies in women who are not pregnant that uh, the main issue of having progesterone in the second half of the cycle is that those secretory proteins that they produce help to balance and stabilize the lining of the womb. And that's why so many women, when they do have periods on P with PCOS, have very long, heavy periods because they're getting all of this estrogen effect. So estrogen is the growth hormone. So it grows the lining of the womb. And then the point of progesterone is to stabilize that lining so that it doesn't bleed abnormally. Well, we know most of the women with PCOS don't have adequate progesterone. So when they do bleed, it tends to be very heavy, long, uh, irregular, breakthrough bleeding, spotting that goes on for days even after the period's over. And these are all, you know, reflective of the hormonal imbalance. So then when you're pregnant, you even more need um, those secretory nutrients that are produced by progesterone. And so um, I think it just relaxes a general understanding and appreciation of how important progesterone is in early pregnancy and an understanding that most women with PCOS are going to be going into the pregnancy with inadequate progesterone. Um, <clears throat> but then you also have common misconception number two, which is that magically at 12 weeks, <laughs> the corpus luteum is not making the progesterone anymore, that the placenta is now making progesterone, and there's suddenly no more need for progesterone. And sometimes that is correct, but many times 
women still are not making adequate progesterone even after the first trimester. So what you have is a lot of women whose placentas are not doing that great of a job of making progesterone. And so some women are still having issues. And if you just sort of randomly stop at that, you know, at that stage, you're going to have a lot of women who, number one, can be symptomatic symptomatic at that point. So we have a lot of women who say, yeah, they took me off at 12 weeks and then I started spotting or I started cramping or I didn't feel good or I felt like something wasn't right. And then they said, no, you don't need it anymore. Um, or they are asymptomatic, but their levels drop. And what's the only way to know if your level is dropping is to test it. <laughs> and right. unfortunately, most doctors are not testing the progesterone levels. Um, so I follow a, a progesterone support protocol in pregnancy that was established by Dr. Thomas Hilgers. And he is um, the doctor at the Pope Paul Institute for right. Reproduction in Omaha, Nebraska, at Creighton University. So this is a Catholic institution, and they don't use birth control, so they have for a long time worked on supporting pregnancy, um, supporting women trying to get pregnant, and women with history of miscarriage. They have always used natural progesterone because they don't use anything synthetic like birth control. So what Dr. Hilgers did is he took a whole bunch of normal pregnant women who had normal full-term births, and he tested them all the way through their pregnancies with progesterone levels every week. And then he compared those to women who had pregnancy problems, such as miscarriages or preterm birth or bleeding during pregnancy or preeclampsia or sort of any, any sort of obstetric complication. And out of that, he created a curve for what the normal progesterone level should be for each gestational week of pregnancy. And so he established his protocol based on normalizing a woman's progesterone level based on that curve. So that's the protocol that we go by. So we don't go by how far along you are or even if you're having symptoms or not. Now, in my practice, symptoms always trump lab levels. So if someone's cramping or bleeding, they're always going to get progesterone even if their level looks okay. But if they're not having symptoms, so if they're asymptomatic, then we try to normalize their progesterone level for where it should be for their gestational age. And on top of that, what we do is if we take someone off, if we wean someone off of progesterone, then we always go back and test them after they're off to make sure they don't drop back down. Mm -hmm. And that's a much more objective way of doing progesterone therapy in pregnancy. So are you using um, suppositories or cream, or are you using um, Prometrium as a supplement? I, I use um, a lot of different kinds of progesterone. Oh, okay. I use oral, so I do use Prometrium. I do, and you can actually use Prometrium orally, or you can insert it vaginally. 
Um, I do use compounded progesterone vaginal suppositories very commonly. Um, and then I do progesterone injections, progesterone and oil proge uh, injections. And I'll be honest with you, I have uh, several patients that have had to be on multiple forms of progesterone in order to maintain their progesterone levels. And so I, um, every individual patient gets an individual care plan based on what what's going on with them. But I just had a patient who came in with her baby um, last week. She just had her baby. And she'd ha she has PCOS. She had, had several miscarriages. And in this pregnancy, she was on shots and oral, I believe. And she actually had to be on shots all the way up until the end. And I usually wean people off by about 38 weeks. And she, she was telling me, she said, the minute I stopped progesterone shots, I started having more Braxton Hicks contractions and went into labor shortly after that. Wow. So there are some women that they just need a boatload of progesterone in order not to contract. Um, because he, we know that progesterone is what uh, sort of causes the uterus to be quiet and to not contract. And so it makes sense that if you don't have enough, then your uterus is going to be more irritable and more likely to contract. Now, obviously, there's other things besides progesterone that can make your uterus contract. You can have infections, and you can have, you know, twins, and you can have, you know, other issues going on that is not hormonal. But... Since progesterone is the pregnancy hormone, and since it's so vital, it is the problem for a large number of women. Yeah, and, and a large number of women with PCOS because they Absolutely. tend towards low. And, and the other thing, I know this is kind of off topic, but the other thing that I um, may you know tell women when you're found out that you are, you're newly pregnant also to get your thyroid tested because low thyroid can also be a problem um, in pregnancy. And I, I think a lot of women with PCOS are hypothyroid and um, and they don't know they are. And, and they're not yeah. getting um, the proper testing or the, you know, the doctors aren't using the right metrics, um, I think, to compare those tests as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that's another area that I think is not not done well. Um, I test everyone for thyroid, of course. But especially someone who's had a miscarriage should mm -hmm. absolutely have their thyroid tested, hopefully before they get pregnant again. We don't want to, you know, I, it's sort of one of my pet peeves that we don't have universal thyroid testing in pregnancy. This is a big controversial topic with ACOG. They, they, they refuse to kind of advocate for that. Um, they still uh, are of the position that only women who have a family history or have, you know, risk factors for thyroid disease should be tested when the truth of the matter is that majority of women who have thyroid issues don't have any other indications that they would have that. So, um, but I do think this goes back into your point about Dr. Bryden's um, statement about stress because all of the hormonal systems talk to each other, right? So all of your hormonal production starts with your hypothalamus, 
your hypothalamus talks to your pituitary, your pituitary talks to your thyroid, talks to your ovaries, and talks to your adrenal glands. So this is a very big, important hormonal circuit. And what happens when women are under stress is they're overproducing cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And if that goes on too long, they can eventually burn out their adrenals or, or have decreased adrenal function, so they're not producing adequate cortisol. And then they will try to go over to the ovaries to try to get some progesterone because these hormones all have the same backbone, and that is cholesterol. So the sex hormones are made from cholesterol, so they are interchangeable somewhat. So the adrenals want, they're under stress, they want to see if they can get some progesterone and make more cortisol. Well, if you don't have adequate progesterone, then that's not going to help that problem. So, you know, her point that, you know, the older you get, the less you're ovulating consistently, the less progesterone you make, that's going to undermine your adrenal function. But that also undermines your thyroid function in a lot of different ways. And so absolutely, every PCOS patient should automatically be tested for thyroid. And, and an interesting thing that you'll see in women who have PCOS and hypothyroidism, sometimes those kinds of symptoms kind of cancel each other out. So if you have a woman with PCOS who has, um, you know, elevated male hormones, she may not actually be exhibiting though the oily skin, the oily hair, acne, all that, because if she has thyroid disease, then that's mm -hmm. sort of drying her out. Right. So I will see a lot of women who are not clinically exhibiting your typical PCOS-type symptoms, but they still have elevated male hormones when you test their hormones. Um, and the thyroid is kind of mitigating some of that, so you don't you don't see it as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, all and then thyroid function is incredibly important for uh, fertility and reproduction. And so I know that you wanted to mention um, this paper that just came out because this is again evidence-based medicine to present to your doctor. Um, this is a paper that was uh, published in Fertility and Sterility, which is a mainstream peer-reviewed uh, journal put out by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And the study uh, is entitled Luteal Start Vaginal Micronized Progesterone Improves Pregnancy Success in Women with Recurrent Pregnancy Loss. And I won't go into the details on this paper, but I will tell you that um, it actually, uh, progesterone support, and in this case it was vaginal prometrium uh, at a dosage of 100 to 200 milligrams, actually improved pregnancy in women who had recurrent pregnancy loss and they didn't have any other obvious reasons why they were losing the pregnancies. But um, it actually improved, uh, compared to controls, uh, 68% of um, women who took Prometrium had a successful pregnancy after pregnancy loss compared to 51% who did not take progesterone. So that was statistically significant. And um, given that women who have PCOS are at risk for 
pregnancy loss, one of my main statements is, why would I want a woman to have to go through a miscarriage before I would give her progesterone? Oh, I know. So, you and, know and you're, so sa you're saving lives. <laughs> I mean, what, what you just did for your, the patient that you described, um, you know, you were able to, to help her have that baby because of the progesterone. So that's, that's wonderful. A um, couple things that I just wanted to, resources that I thought of. Uh, first of all, we were talking offline about Dr. Laura Bryden's um, article about women in their 40s and um, decreasing progesterone and stress. And you could find that on her blog, or, if, um, or I'll try to put a link to it in, um, under the pod article under resources. Um, also, you had mentioned um, Dr. Hilger's and Crichton, the Crichton model. Um, and you know, if, uh, I know that I actually went to a um, a NAPRO doctor, um, which is trained mm -hmm. in in um, Dr. Hilger's method. So uh, that's one thing. That if you're listening and you're concerned about progesterone, you could look for a NAPRO. Um, trained doctor, and you know they would be familiar with um, the protocol that Dr. Poppy's describing. Um, and then finally, hypothyroid mom. Um, she's a blogger, and she's uh, a real advocate in thyroid testing for, um, in pregnancy to avoid miscarriage. And she would be another great resource um, if you're interested in more information there. Um, but gosh. Dr. Poppy, there was so many other things that I wanted to ask you about, about thyroid beyond pregnancy, so I'm going to have to invite you back on the, sure. the podcast so that you can, we can talk more about, um, you know, pro progesterone and, um, and stress, and, you know, we kind of sort of touched the surface of that. Um, but I would, I really want you to tell our listeners um, how they can find out more about your work and connect with you on social media, um, and you know if they're in um, in your area, um, even see you in your practice. Sure. Um, so um, on Facebook, my Facebook, my professional Facebook page is Dr. Poppy. And I do try to put up um, a lot of articles, such as this progesterone paper, which got lots and lots of shares when I put it up. Um, well, I put up information about a wide variety of subjects, but I do regularly post on PCOS, um, post about progesterone a lot. You can follow me on Twitter, and that's at Dr. Poppy BHRT on Twitter. And uh, my website is drpoppy.com. So I have um, information on there. Um, I, I do want to say a couple of things for your listeners who are trying to sort of access some of these things that have sort of running into roadblocks. Um, if you go to fertilitycare.org, fertilitycare.org, they have the NAPRO doctors listed on there by region. So those are doctors that usually follow Dr. Hilger's progesterone support protocol. Um, Unfortunately, you know, if you're more in a more rural area, you may not have as much access to a NAPRO doctor. I'm actually not a NAPRO doctor. I um, I just follow his protocol because um, I've always um, progesterone has always been very important, and it made sense to have more of a structured uh, guide to go by. But um, I think I think that if patients can sort of talk to their doctors and sort of 
say some of these things in a very kind of non non-confrontational way. I think that there are some doctors that will listen and will say, yeah, I'm willing to do that, especially if you sort of say, have you seen this paper? It really shows that, you know, women had good pregnancy success with using progesterone. Um, you're always going to have those docs that are not open-minded. And so I always tell my patients, you know, talk with your feet. You are a healthcare consumer. You have a I right to engage with a provider who will respect you. And these are all very reasonable things that we're talking about. Getting your thyroid checked, you know, be considering progesterone support when you have PCOS. These are not sort of unreasonable requests. So um, I do think it's important for patients to try to identify those those practitioners that are near them that would be more supportive. And that's where social media has been greatly beneficial. Um, mm -hmm. So people can sort of crowdsource and get on forums and get on Facebook and Twitter and listen to podcasts and try to find doctors who are more supportive to the hormonal aspect of these things. Um, but, you know, I've had some women who just weren't able to get anybody to listen to them and they just went to the health food store and got progesterone cream over the counter and just use that because that was the only thing that they had access to. And it's not my optimal way of using progesterone in pregnancy because it's hard to monitor topically applied progesterone cream, but some women are desperate and they, you know, they don't want to lose their, their babies. So um, I feel very sad that so many women have not been able to get the support they needed. Um, as far as seeing me in person, uh, I'm in Missouri, and um, so if you're in Missouri and you wanted to come see me, you could do that. I also have a license in Pennsylvania, and I'm available to do Skype consults in Pennsylvania. And um, if you are in any other state, I can do a Skype consult with you, but I cannot uh, prescribe medication across state lines in a state that I don't have um, I don't have a medical license in. So I've had some patients who said, if you'll just sort of tell me what to do, I will share it with my local doctor, and my local doctor can prescribe this for me. And that's fine if you have a nurse practitioner or a midwife or someone else who would be willing to prescribe what I recommend. That's one option. And then, of course, I've had people that just decided to travel to see me because they, they wanted to work with me, and that's an option too. Um, but I do, I would suggest reaching out to see if there's any fertility care or NAPRO doctors close by if you have PCOS and you are interested in progesterone support in pregnancy. Well, really, that, that's great resources, and it's great that, that women can avail themselves um, of your help. And thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast and talking about this really important topic. Well, it, it is one of my favorite topics. And <laughs> I always tell patients, I probably see 10 PCOS patients a week on average. And, you know, this used to be a very rare condition that some doctors would never see a case of it in their whole careers. And now we are seeing tons and tons and tons of PCOS, which does point to um, the food supply and the environment as yeah. big factors, big factors mm -hmm. for why we see so much of this. Um, but the good news is PCOS is very treatable. 
very treatable and especially if you have more of a holistic approach like what you mm -hmm. recommend with dietary changes and more of a holistic approach you can actually really have good results with PCOS. Yeah, well that's what we teach here on PCOS Diva and um, and I hope that you'll come back on to talk about, you know, another uh, important topic sometime soon. Absolutely, I'd love to. Well, that wraps up our podcast today. I thank you all so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes, the app, or wherever you might be listening to the show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes. I love to hear from you. And if you think of someone else that might benefit from this podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend or family member so she can benefit from it too. And don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter. Just email, um, just enter your email on PCOS Diva and you get instant access and make sure you never miss a future uh, podcast or posting. This is Amy Medling wishing you good health. I look forward to being with you again soon. Bye-bye.